Hello, my name is Leszek Jaszczewski. Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, a European Liberal Forum project. I hope you'll enjoy our program. Hello and welcome to Liberal Europe podcast. My name is Leszek Jaszczewski and my guest today is uh, Brendan Sims, a professor uh, on, in the history of international relations and fellow at Peterhouse College, Cambridge. He's the author of, of many books, but, well, one on, to which we will uh, at least have some uh, short comments or, or discussion will be the Hitler book, the Global Biography. Brendan, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. So, uh, it is, we are, uh, uh, you, you, will, you will listen to it in, um, uh, in the September, but we, we uh, are talking on the September 1st. Uh, a day which is remembered not only in my in my whole country, Poland. I wanted to ask you uh, why Hitler decided to invade Poland, and knowing well that the Western powers will have to intervene, and that actually the global or at least the European war is not widely popular at home. Well, that's an extremely good question, not least because uh, Hitler's um, attitude towards Poland was actually a great deal less negative. Uh, than one might otherwise uh, assume, uh, in the sense that he um, uh, didn't uh, uh, he didn't particularly target uh, Poland uh, in the 1930s or indeed in his writings. Although there are uh, sideswipes against General Korfanty, there are sideswipes on various issues. But but broadly speaking, uh, certainly in Mein Kampf, uh, he does identify Poland as a country. Uh, with which uh, one could have good relations. Um, and in fact, uh, he was a, a considerable admirer, for instance, um, of Marshal Piłsudski. So why does he attack Poland? Well, the reason, and why does he do it when he does it, on the 1st of September uh, 1939? Um, and the reason is that Hitler's main concern, not his only concern, but his main concern, was the uh, preoccupation with the what he calls the Anglo-Saxon powers, uh, the British Empire and the United States. He sees them as, as the real global ordering forces, and he wants to join the global ordering forces. And the only way you can do that, in his view, is to secure contiguous living space uh, with Germany in the East. But that living space is conceived uh, of uh, not as Poland itself, uh, but really of, uh, as Russia. Um, and his uh, initial hope in 1938, the beginning of 1939, is to secure Polish cooperation for an attack on the Soviet Union. Uh, and when that request is denied, for reasons which are entirely reasonable, of course, from the uh, Polish point of view, uh, when that is denied, then um, uh, he, he attacks Poland basically uh, to occupy Poland and use it as a jumping off point uh, against the Soviet Union. So the ultimate target uh, is the Soviet Union, not because he's concerned about the Soviet Union as an actor that will attack him, uh, that's a minor consideration, but rather because he wants to seize in the Soviet Union the land that he will need to balance uh, the Anglo-Americans. And he's been anxious ever since uh, 1937 about the escalating enmity of the British, but particularly also uh, of the United States, of uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who, of course, had famously given the, the, the quarantine speech uh, in the autumn of 1937, which Hitler felt was very much directed against him as one of the three 
totalitarian powers identified by Roosevelt. So these are all the reasons why Hitler feels that he's running out of time. He needs to secure Lebensraum. He has failed uh, to uh, secure Polish cooperation. Uh, and so the attack goes in. Well, um, speaking of Soviet attacks, it's, it's very hard reading your book in, in the context of current Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's hard to escape the the feeling that the rhetorics of encirclements by the Anglo-Saxon is very much present also in the rhetorics of Vladimir Putin. And one of the qualities of your book is that I think in a very cold-blooded way, it's, it's looks at Hitler and his strategic um, and anti-capitalist, anti-Anglo-Saxon ideology, not trying to mystify or, well, I, I think it, it, one of the problems of, of, of the history is when Hitler, well, right so, is considered the, the, the perhaps one of the most evil person ever, ever, ever living. It's, it's extremely hard to analyze what he actually achieved and what he did, what he intended. How do you see the, the rhetorics of Vladimir Putin? Do you see the echo of what very different historical context Hitler said and thought? Do you think that there is any parallels here that, that Putin also is, is fighting very much the Anglo-Saxon, what he sees as Anglo-Saxon encirclement and, and NATO, and, and, and he wants to oppose it uh, in, in the Ukraine? Yes. So, I mean, the first thing to be said um, is, is, is really your point that, of course, this is a very different historical, historical context. Uh, Vladimir Putin is not uh, the same uh, as Adolf Hitler. Uh, for example, he doesn't have the same anti-Semitic policies and there are many other differences. So uh, we need to be clear about that. Having said that, um, you're absolutely correct also to draw attention to these really quite fascinating and disturbing parallels uh, in the rhetoric and in the worldview, indeed, uh, which uh, uh, exactly does center around this sense of antagonism against uh, the Anglo-Saxon world, and this is a phrase that is, is used a great deal in, uh, in Russian rhetoric, um, a world uh, which is the world of international capitalism, a world in which, uh, you know, the West, uh, which is sort of, you know, Anglo-Saxon and the West is, is sort of, to a certain extent, overlap uh, in this rhetoric. Um, it's a world, uh, it, you know, in other words, which is controlled by the West, which is, has in their view unfairly shut out Russia, has set all the rules, um, and is, is slowly encroaching on Russia uh, in the shape, uh, first of all, of NATO, but increasingly also uh, in the shape of the um, European Union. Um, and just as Hitler conceived of Lebensraum and later, later the, uh, uh, what the Nazi theorists called the Grossraum, or the larger uh, economic and political space within Europe as a counterbalance, against the British Empire uh, and the United States. So Putin sees the Eurasian uh, Economic Union uh, in particular as the counterbalance against China, against the United States, but also specifically against the European Union, uh, some of which structures uh, it mimics. So to that extent, yes, I think there is a, a fruitful um, and an unsettling parallel uh, between the rhetorics uh, of Hitler and Putin. They both see themselves uh, as representing uh, a counterpole against prevailing Western or stroke Anglo-Saxon um, ordering principles. I want to talk to you um, about the wider context of the, of the Russian invasion, because there are wars which are perceived uh, as transformative in, in European history, the Napoleonic Wars, First and Second World War, and there are also wars which are uh, even perhaps sometimes, uh, well, extremely 
harmful and as always are and uh, are purely regional or uh, peripheral uh, in, in their outcomes. And I, I'm wondering, how do you see the, the recent war, which is certainly now limited to the eastern and southern part of Ukraine, but at the same time engaging uh, actors not only in Europe, but also on the other side of the Atlantic. So is it the peripheral or the central conflict in terms of European affairs? Well, I think it's very much a central conflict. It's a challenge uh, to the entire uh, European order, a full-scale attack uh, on a sovereign state involving um, annexation and intended annexation of large chunks of that state. Um, but it's important here to be clear that, of course, 24th of February is, uh, is an escalation in the invasion, but it's not the original invasion itself, uh, which, of course, goes back to the start of 2014, uh, with the annexation of, of Crimea, uh, and then, of course, uh, the uh, Russian uh, intervention to support uh, separatist movements uh, in Donetsk uh, and uh, Luhansk. That really uh, was the start of this conflict, uh, which at the, from that point was a pockel uh, and a, a major challenge to the European order. Something like that had not happened since 1945. And beyond being a challenge to the European order, it is, of course, also a challenge to the global order, uh, because it is, is an open act of defiance uh, against prevailing uh, system, undertaken with at least uh, the toleration uh, and, to a certain extent, also the benevolent support uh, of the People's Republic of China, uh, the PRC. So th this is a huge challenge, and the fact that at the moment, uh, a lot of the anxiety and, and discussion around it has died down compared to late February, early March. Uh, that shouldn't disguise the fact uh, that what we're looking at is something of, of, of absolutely uh, a critical importance. It's, uh, well, I, I would like, if you have time, to, to follow up on how that could transform, transform Europe as such. But before that, I would like to ask you, how do you, is it possible to... to decipher what are the goals of Putin in this war? Because uh, perhaps he miscalculated in, in, his, uh, in his thinking that the, the Western powers won't be involved if he can achieve the fait accompli quickly enough and, and destroy Ukrainian sovereignty. Uh, he obviously miscalculated here if it was his goal. Uh, do, 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 you see, do you see, well, geopolitical or ideological uh, reasoning be behind the, the invasion, which actually, well, if, if we consider that Ukraine supported by now, well, most of the free world, many of the countries of the of the free West are uh, economically dominant uh, over Russia. In the long term, it's hard to imagine how he could prevail in such a conflict. So well, how do you see his goals in this in this conflict, in this war? Well, I think his his aim and his, his concern is primarily uh, a conflict with the West. He sees themselves, and we spoke about that earlier, as being uh, encroached on by on all sides. So in his own mind, and I stress very much in his own mind only, this is also a defensive conflict. He is reacting in his own mind to what he regards as the unwarranted uh, ordering um, ambitions of the West uh, within what he believes to be uh, the Russian space. Um, and to that extent, um, Ukraine is, is a, a battleground. It is not the primary purpose of the war. And I say that not to belittle 
the achievement of the Ukrainians in defending themselves or to deny them agency, but it's simply to, to make the point that were Ukraine uh, to be defeated, uh, were he to, to gain everything he wanted in Ukraine, which is basically to break Ukraine um, as an independent actor and to, to annex large swathes of it, that would not be the end of the story. So he, he regards Ukraine um, as an area in which uh, Western influence is growing and threatening him in, in the form of possible NATO uh, or EU enlargement. But he also sees Ukraine as a kind of an anti-Russia. Uh, he said this on a number of occasions, that he cannot allow uh, Ukraine to become an anti-Russia. Um, and by that he means, in effect, uh, that Ukraine were to become a success, uh, to go down the road that Poland, for example, has gone. I mean, if you look in 1991, uh, the economic um, differential between Ukraine and Poland was not large at all. And now, of course, it's huge. And that's a result of the Western option uh, and the European integration of Poland, along, of course, with the talent of the Poles themselves. Um, but what he cannot absolutely uh, envisage at all is that the same thing would happen in Ukraine because that would have uh, an effect uh, on Russia itself. So while Ukraine is important in and of itself, uh, his main battle uh, is with the West. Uh, and that is why I say, and many other people say, that this is a, a much, much broader conflict. Uh, and it's a reason why we cannot afford to lose it. I certainly, I certainly agree that, that well, Ukraine is essential to, to the Russian thinking of, well, uh, imperial European and global importance and otherwise. Uh, without Ukraine, Russia is not an empire. And uh, mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's what's very much, it's very deep in, in Polish thinking about uh, the Eastern neighbor. And I think also in the, uh, in, and in this, well, struggle for, for hundreds of years between Russia and, and uh, Poland, the Lithuania Commonwealth, all the Ukrainian territory and the Ukrainian sovereign states. And obviously uh, for, for Western Europe, for, for Poland, it's essential that it is uh, independent and sovereign, not occupied by Russian forces. Where I think I tend to, to disagree with those who think that Ukraine could serve as a role model for Russia is that Russians very much look down on Ukrainians. It's, it's almost like one can imagine that your home uh, land, uh, island would be perceived by uh, UK imperialists as a kind of role model. I think it's historically very, very, well, it, it, it will be hard uh, for, for, for at least imperialists uh, Russian imperialists to see Ukraine as, as a potential uh, way forward for, for Russia. Uh, but what's important here, uh, you, you said about the Putin war with the West as, as a primary goal, at least one of the main goals of, of his campaign. Do you think that in some, uh, in some way the West, the, the Europe, European Union and, and US play, well, of course, analogies uh, only go so far, but a, a similar uh, role as United States played towards Britain after land lease uh, and before the Pearl Harbor. So being more than just purely neutral force, but at the same time trying to avoid entering the, the, the armed conflict. Do you think there is any parallels here? Do we, can we think of ourselves as a kind of allies um, with big A? Uh, yeah. how, how do you see this parallel? And yeah, how, do you have, well, an interest, not just the ideal in, mm. in being on the side of Ukraine? Mm. Well, I mean, the, the, um, that's a really interesting question. Um, it's a fascinating parallel. And of course, it's encouraged by the fact that some of the key legislation on the American side is actually termed lend-lease. 
for Ukraine, right, in, in, in Congress. Um, and so they see the parallels as well. Um, so there's this idea that just as uh, uh, America in the 1940 and, and early 1941 was the arsenal of democracy, as it was put, uh, that the West could, could serve in that capacity uh, for Ukraine. Um, I certainly think that would be a very good idea. A lot has been done already. Um, much more needs to be done. The thing that I, I worry about, and it's not a reason not to act, but it's a reason to reflect uh, a little bit, is that, of course, the, um, this was a, uh, an escalatory ladder on the American side that led the United States into war, into direct conflict with Hitler, in fact, provoked Hitler, uh, in a sense. And this, I, I've co-written a book with Charlie Lederman about this called Hitler's American Gamble, which came out last year, which is precisely on this period uh, in the autumn and the winter of 1941, uh, when Hitler is, is, is thinking about what to do about the United States. Uh, Lend-Lease very considerably drives Hitler towards, uh, preemptively in his own mind, declaring war uh, on the United States, which of course seals his fate, uh, which uh, of course we can only be uh, very happy about in retrospect. I have a little bit of a concern that um, Putin might react to this Lend-Lease um, activity uh, by thinking that, well, now he's at war anyway with the West, and so he might as well go the whole hog. He certainly, on occasion, at the beginning anyway, uh, uh, made similar arguments. Now, I'm not saying we should be bluffed by him into holding back, uh, but what I'm saying is that we need to, to bear in mind that in important respects, uh, we are already considered to be a belligerent uh, by Putin uh, and the Russian uh, Federation. Um, the other interesting parallel, of course, is that the PRC hasn't yet come in openly into the fight, and it's not obvious that it will. Uh, and in some ways, of course, there you have the parallel again in 1941, where you had the Germans already in the war, uh, but the Japanese pondering their move. Um, so there are all kinds of interesting resonances which lead us in, in, in different directions here with these historical comparisons. Well, if, if you look at the history of the conflict, most of the time, it seems that strategically, well, the welfare and the stronger economic side prevail, however, not always. And of course, there were tactical, uh, well, or even strategic uh, wins by also by Hitler, of course, at, at some points. But you're right that basically his uh, war against uh, against the Anglo-Saxon was, well, basically doomed from the start, yeah. uh, considering the, the resources on both sides. Yeah. Do, do you think that, of course, I mean, again, the, the, the Ukraine is not France or Poland, and uh, uh, in this case, it's not absolutely sure, we cannot be absolutely sure that all the resources will be mobilized. Definitely uh, not, the, 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 our political systems are not transformed in the way that the war transformed the, the UK and, uh, and the United States at the time. How, but how do you see the, the prospects of, of the future conflict, considering the, the resources of Russia with this uh, support, indirect or direct, from, from, from China and, and the West, which is mm. still stronger, but not that perhaps much determined to actually perhaps defend Ukraine as, as a part of its, as it did, uh, as it did uh, when it comes to, to, to Europe in the Second World War. How this conflict can, can, can evolve mm. in the next couple of I don't know, months, years? How to tell? Well, I, I think 
that um, uh, Russia has no chance of winning a long conflict. I mean, at the moment, it's it's waging a war of attrition, which uh, in in many respects is exactly the wrong war to be waging because Western uh, help for Ukraine is 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 has already been substantial. It's it will only increase, um, and you know, just as um, Japan and, and Germany were were as, as Churchill predicted, ground to powder. Um, I'm afraid the same will happen to the Russian Federation, not in the sense of a physical annihilation, but simply in the sense of a, a long-term, slow bleeding out of the economy, of culture, demographically, in health terms. Uh, Russia will simply be impoverished and marginalized um, and, in a sense, undermined um, as a population and as a, as a political entity. And so it, it, its only chance, really, uh, was to wage a kind of blitzkrieg, which is what obviously what Putin intended and failed. So in that sense, um, Putin resembles much more, perhaps, Mussolini, uh, who attacked Greece, of course, in, in uh, 1940 and failed and attacked, uh, uh, previous to that, attacked France and the South and, and failed. Um, so uh, ha- having, having uh, been unsuccessful in the blitzkrieg, uh, they really have no likelihood at all um, of being successful in, in the war of, of attrition. Um, this is the kind of thing the West is good at, which is supplying weapons, cutting off the enemy uh, from the global commons. And uh, while there might be a price to be paid for that in terms of uh, commodities, in terms of energy, in terms of food supply and so on, um, this is a, a contest that um, the West can wage an awful lot longer than the Russians. So that makes me optimistic, at least for the West. Right. Uh, so uh, you, you said before that you are slightly afraid of possible Russian escalation, considering that Putin already sees himself as a war in the, with the West. Do you think it is possible that NATO would enter militarily into the conflict? What would have to happen? Would it have to be a direct invasion towards, uh, I know, Baltic states, Poland? Are there any other scenarios in which the escalation, military escalation mm-hmm. between NATO and Russia is possible in your view? Well, I think a Russian attack on, on the NATO area, so Baltic states, Poland, uh, now Finland, Sweden, uh, Romania, that would certainly lead to full-scale conflict. I think there's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, you could envisage scenarios in which uh, NATO would be brought into the war nonetheless, which could be scenarios around very large-scale uh, killing of civilians, um, humanitarian concerns, things that we saw at the beginning of the war and was moving the dial here. Um, I think you could envisage a situation where there would be at least below the radar um, deployment of troops or or, or perhaps no-fly zones and so on. Um, I, I think those were ruled out at the beginning of the conflict. I think they would come back into the discussion if things shifted very badly against Ukraine. But at the moment, that seems pretty remote as a likelihood for the, for the simple reason that the Russians are, are nowhere near uh, realizing their objectives um, and in fact are, have been stalled and probably are in retreat. So I'm not reckoning at the moment with a direct um, NATO intervention. And despite some rhetoric, there's no real sign that Putin himself wants to escalate things either. I mean, there's been a, a very uh, perceptible dialing down of Russian rhetoric over the last weeks and months, I would say, compared to the beginning of the war. 
Um, so so I, I think NATO intervention at the moment it doesn't seem likely. Well, the, we're getting slowly to the, to the end of our podcast, but I want to ask you two, two last questions. Well, first is, how, how do you see the, well, the, the European response so far to the war? Uh, do you think it's, it's on the strategic level that we might expect from Europeans who wanted to disentangle a little bit from the United States and, and think of European sovereignty? Uh, or do you see that it is as the in the Cold War times, it is basically Americans are driving sit, mm-hmm. and this is very much kind of Cold War situation where Europeans are following the US mm-hmm. uh, strategic decisions? Well, I think the response has been very differentiated. Um, if we compare it to um, overall, if we compare it to, say, the response to uh, the annexation of Crimea and the invasions of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, Uh, it's better. I mean, there's now uh, really very little discussion about what's actually going on, who's primarily to blame, uh, and agreement on the fact that that action needs to be taken. Um, Beyond that, um, I think it depends on which part of Europe you're looking at. Um, Plainly, uh, the eastern flank, in particular Poland, uh, Finland, Sweden, the Baltic states, have mounted a pretty robust response, which is not surprising as they're in the front line. Um, much of the rest of Europe has been, uh, frankly, pretty pathetic. Uh, the German response uh, has been, I think, uh, a dismal, uh, but not as bad as it was uh, in the immediate run-up uh, to the war in the years before then. Um, as you know, of course, uh, Germany completely Uh, bet on the wrong horse in Russia. It made completely wrong assumptions about Russian intentions. Uh, it allowed itself to be put in a situation of uh, energy blackmail. Uh, and the results are now plain for everybody to see, and the Germans also accept that. Uh, so I wasn't surprised by the so-called Zeitenwende speech by Chancellor Scholz. I'm, I'm disappointed, but not really surprised that Less has been done so far by the Germans militarily to support the Ukrainians than had been promised in that speech. Um, but that is just the nature, I'm afraid, of uh, contemporary Germany, uh, which has uh, many good qualities, uh, but strategic thinking, uh, the ability to, to, to um, uh, punch according to its weight uh, in European defense and so on, uh, they're not among those uh, qualities. The same to a certain extent, could be said of France, which again uh, backed the wrong horse. You, you'll remember, of course, the negotiations of uh, President Macron uh, with, with Putin, which in fact persisted even beyond uh, the date of the invasion. Um, uh, that, of course, was a mistake. Um, what I think needs to be uh, realized as well uh, is a remarkable fact the UK response, because the UK is not, in fact, Uh, in the first line of those threatened. It had been warning uh, in the lead up to the invasion uh, about what was happening. It had been very much to the front in supplying weaponry uh, to Ukraine. And it, in fact, is the European country singled out most by President Zelensky and Ukrainians uh, for its support uh, of Ukraine. So uh, as I say, the, the European reaction is differentiated. Um, Uh, the UK is, is to a certain extent leading. Uh, Poland and, and the Baltic states, of course, and Finland and, and Sweden are, are playing an important part. Uh, and much of the rest of Europe, unfortunately, uh, continues to dispense. Uh, nevertheless, 
without uh, the backstop um, help of the United States, uh, you know, uh, I think Europe would be uh, in real difficulties. So yes, uh, uh, in the end, um, the United States leads, uh, but uh, the UK and some of the others have also played very important roles. And well, the last question with regard to global implications of the war, because we see, well, uh, at least I, I, I see the tendencies which go in the very different directions. So on the one hand, we see, again, the kind of, well, in general, let's say the united front of the of the old Western powers. At the same time, we see many democracies which were hosted by President Biden and the Community of Democracies Summit, which didn't, well, they are neutral or uh, at least not taking sides in this conflict on not supporting Ukraine. Some mm -hmm. of them, some of those countries like India, South Africa, well, well traditionally, mm -hmm. uh, or it is perceived as, as US allies. At the same time, uh, the global rivalry between Russia and China seems to be at least currently, well, not stopped, but it's not taking the, the kind of, it's not perceived as perhaps the, 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 the issue of the day as it was in the last couple of years under President Trump at the beginning of the, of the, of the Biden. We see, uh, well, on one hand, the Western Europe uh, understanding finally the, the fears of the Eastern Europe, uh, but at the same time, there is a big disappointment in those countries in the West, as you mentioned rightly, the inadequate response of the, of the uh, Western major powers in this conflict. We see Great Britain coming closer together with the EU, while at the same time having these minor quarrels over uh, fishermen quarters and other issues. So um, I'm, I'm wondering, how do you see the, the, these implications for both the European project and the global affairs, especially the rivalry between China and, and Russia? Do you think it will lead to more, uh, I mean, it, it will kind of preserve the, the status quo, or it would rather try to fasten and dismantle the, the current uh, European, uh, current uh, world's order? Well, I, I'm afraid that in the case of the European Union, while one would expect and hope that this shock would drive uh, the EU closer together and provide some of the impetus for full political union. I mean, as you know, I'm a supporter of the creation of the United States uh, of Europe out of the, uh, the existing uh, European Union. And, you know, the great unions of the past, the, the United Kingdom, the United States have been basically forged and molded by uh, large-scale international challenges. Um, and certainly President Putin uh, does constitute such a challenge. Unfortunately, uh, there is really very little sign that uh, in the EU as a whole, that that's brought us any closer to a United States uh, of Europe. Um, so I fear that um, uh, this war will not lead to, to any great change uh, in the European Union. It will simply show up the European Union uh, and the weaknesses which were well known long before uh, the escalation of the invasion on, on the 24th of February. The other implication, I think, is that it does show how important the United Kingdom is within Europe. Um, you made uh, allusions to uh, differences that the UK has with the EU over fishing. One might also mention the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, I think this is something that mainland Europe is going to have to think about, whether it is now going to pursue uh, these um, differences and other differences in a way that might cut across uh, uh, the um, relationship with the UK. Uh, because of course, this is, is an asymmetrical one in the sense that the United Kingdom is doing 
things for, for Europe. It is not protecting its own immediate boundary here. It is protecting uh, the European order um, in a way that is all the more striking for the fact that the Europeans seem incapable of doing it uh, for themselves, even though they have the resources. So I think the big question the Europeans, by which I mean the, the, the uh, EU countries, have to ask themselves is, you know, is it a friendly space? Is, is it going to uh, pursue these differences with the UK or is it prepared perhaps uh, to stand back a bit in these matters and recognise uh, what the UK is doing uh, on the defence front? Because although the United Kingdom has never made its um, defence commitments contingent on any good behaviour of the EU in this regard, um, I think it's rather difficult to explain to the UK public why it should be defending, for the sake of argument, Eastern Europeans, while these Eastern Europeans are ganging up with the rest of the European Union against the UK uh, on these uh, economic and, and, and other ordering matters, particularly to do with Northern Ireland. So that's something for the EU to, to, to ponder. As for, finally, the global implications, I don't entirely agree with you that the PRC uh, US or PRC Western antagonism has receded. I mean, it it zoomed back um, very much, for example, with the Pelosi visit to Taiwan. That is still there. That is still important. And in some ways, even more important uh, after the invasion uh, of Ukraine. The question really is, what are the implications? Um, is the PRC going to think, now that the Russians have moved and are in difficulties, should I move? Should we move now before it's too late? I mean, that was a major part of the Japanese uh, considerations and um, Hitler's uh, decision to attack, uh, you know, to, to, to declare war in the United States? Or will they say to themselves, given the difficulties the Russians have had um, with Ukraine, um, is it going to be so easy to take over Taiwan? Uh, look at the Western response to the, that invasion and its effects on, on Russia. What happens if we were to be unplugged from the global economic system? Um, so we simply don't know, I'm afraid, what uh, the leaders in Beijing are thinking about this um, and obviously you know their decisions and, and, and their reading of it is going to have major implications for the next few years. Brendan Sims, thank you for these very insightful remarks and thank you for being with us uh, on the podcast. A pleasure, thank you for having me. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and if you like what we are doing and want to help spreading the liberal values please give us a five-star review and share with your friends.